1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB archives.
1: It's a kind of like a woke particularism of its own kind because yeah. it's saying like this attempt to make all the world cookie cutter the same is bound to fail and will only backfire. So in the, in the slogan of the far right now, right, yeah. a place for every race, yeah. um, mm-hmm. everyone has their own tradition, There just shouldn't be this sort of crossing of the the boundaries that keep us all in the containers where we flourish.
0: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, making sense of contemporary problems by looking back at books that shaped the world we inherited and perhaps never so insidiously and malevolently <laughs> as the ones we're going to be looking at today. To my left, um, anthropologist and non benevolent anthropologist <laughs> and Latin Americanist, Elizabeth Ferry, non, <laughs> non-malevolent, also benevolent. Uh,
2: milleristic, mil- um, And I am um,
0: <laughs> John Plotz, not very insidious, um, non-eminent Victorianist. Um, so, uh, and we're your host today. So, um, strong words malevolent and insidious so why Um, because our topic today is the anti-immigrant xenophobia that now circulates on the political right and two of our chosen texts from 1973 and 1974 turned out to have a far-reaching impact in encouraging the libertarian right to evolve or devolve towards a closed border policy as regards human movement. In order to have this conversation, we're joined uh, today by Wellesley College professor Quinn Slobodian. Uh, Quinn, hi. Thanks for coming. Hi. Uh, Quinn is a historian of modern German and international history with a focus on North-South politics, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. So he's the author of many uh, great articles and an edited collection and a pair of books. But I came to his work, as I bet many people, uh, many of our listeners did, through his really brilliant uh, book from last year, Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. So, Quinn, we, you know are huge admirers of your work in general. But we asked you here today, you know, to talk about this question of uh, texts from the past that help us understand some of the strains of xenophobia we've got today. So can you tell us about the book you brought with you?
1: Sure. Uh, Show and I'm tell. I'm glad moment. to say that I don't have a paper copy of it and don't intend <laughs> okay. to buy one. So this is uh, a version downloaded from the internet, of a book called The Camp of the Saints by the French author Jean Raspail. It is the the idea that came to me because novels don't come up actually that often in the readings that I do of kind of right-wing libertarian political theory or neoliberal constitutionalist political theory. They don't sort of root their arguments in novels as much as actually I would like. They... They do make reference to theology. They do make reference mm. occasionally to, to art and certainly classical philosophy. But novels don't come up that often. However, this one does come up, The Camp of the Saints, and it doesn't just come up for them. It was published in 1973, and the, the scene that it sets is um, some combination of young missionary left-wing French white do-gooders and a kind of inchoate, pre-rational, um, id-driven mass of non-white humans, almost humans, subhumans, in India have hatched this plan to to form what ends up being called the Last Chance Armada, which is two large rusting steamers setting sail from around Calcutta and heading towards. Europe with a ragtag flotilla of rafts and dinghies and whatnot attached to the back, amounting to this this floating city of about a million people. The drama of the novel is the fact that the West feels paralyzed by its inability to do what the author clearly thinks is the right thing, which is just to turn away this massive, um, you know, diseased and starving people out of their own self-interest. Instead, the West has this monkey of liberal guilt and supposedly uh, you know, post-colonial angst on its back, which, which leads country after country to think that at least they need to make some kind of a pretense of welcoming this coming flotilla, the coming armada. And ultimately, the, the armada ends up landing, setting, uh, setting a light in the south of France and what ensues is basically the, what actually Rod Dreher and the conservative columnist would call in 2015 the suicide of the Christian West, whereby the white French people essentially come running with, with open arms and are promptly slaughtered and raped and expropriated. And the, the country of France is taken
0: over then by this advance guard of, of brown people um, hey, Quinn, can I just jump in here? Because yeah. it's, um, I mean, it's very, it's, it's, I almost feel like we should have had a trigger warning just even to hear the plot summary. <laughs> sure. It's like yeah. very, yes. it's heavy stuff. But yeah. um, but that pattern that you're describing here in, obviously, in 2019, it's all too familiar, that kind of rhetoric, mm-hmm. that notion that anybody crossing any border, including the U.S.'s southern border, is somehow part of the trail of, you know, quote, rapists and murderers or, you know, the, right. that notion of the, what I think Respai calls it the anti-world at one Point. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you set the scene for like 1973, which I associate with, you know, free love and the shadow of 1968 <laughs> and stuff like that? Was it? I mean, was it pretty normal Excellent. on the right in Europe for books like that to be published in the 70s, or is, does this stand out even then?
1: I think it does stand out. I mean, part of the reason why it's it's become so iconic or canonical for the for the far right is that it did sort of anticipate. Um, Moral panics and kind of hysterias that would come later. I mean, it's notable that the wave of the Vietnamese boat people refugee crisis hadn't hit yet. Right. That wouldn't hit. Until That's like 78 se- or something. Yeah. 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 And that would, in fact, end up triggering some of the very things that Raspai describes, i.e. high profile leftist intellectuals like Sartre and Iran and Foucault coming out in favor of of refugees. So what you I mean, what you had at that time was it wasn't really a time of panic about mass Immigration, because there actually wasn't a hmm. great deal of mass immigration, unless you set aside the um, migrations from within the French Empire, from French North Africa and French West Africa. Right. Those weren't new; those had been happening all through the 1960s. So it was peculiar to, to hit upon this idea of sort of the invasion of brown people into Europe. It was, in that sense, a kind of a leap of fantasy for him, which I don't think he was. He was. Um, he wasn't uh, narrating, tearing things from the headlines to come up with his yeah. plot. Yeah,
0: can I maybe, maybe. Re- read a quote that I wanted sure. to ask you about yes. that related to that? There also seems to be some 1789 language, mm-hmm. like in other words, like there's a line: the human race, the good thing that we've learned from this raft is that quote, the human race no longer formed one great fraternal whole as mm-hmm. the Pope's philosophers, intellects, politicos, and priests of the West had been claiming. So that notion, no more fraternity was interesting to me because, you know, I think of that as like one of those core claims of Frenchness.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um,
0: so it's, you know,
1: yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah. it's a, I mean, so this is why it's a kind of a text of like the new right, I think, in the in the sense of the Nouvelle Droite because it is a rejection of universalism. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. It, it, in favor of it's it's a kind of like a woke particularism of its own kind, because yeah. it's saying like this attempt to make all the world cookie cutter the same yeah. through processes of westernization, Americanization, modernization is bound to fail and will only backfire. So in the in the slogan of the far right now, right, a yeah. place for every race. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone has their own tradition. There just shouldn't be this sort of crossing of the, the boundaries that keep us all in the containers yeah. where
0: we flourish. Can I just mm-hmm. underline that phrase, awoke particularism? I mean, that's <laughs> great, because I do feel like that's so much of what we're struggling with right now is that mm-hmm. question of particularism and the all the different varieties of identity politics, which we wish to make minute distinctions about, but mm-hmm. we need to be able to recognize commonalities yeah. as well.
2: Sometimes yeah. not so minute.
0: Yeah, there are non-minute distinctions, too. but. I I mean, the phrase woke particularism, I do think covers like that notion of people, people's in their place. So, Quinn, I wanted to follow up on, I want to make sure that the way I introduced you was correct, which Mm -hmm. is that I said that the thing about this text that's interesting is that it had this effect on sort of shaping far right, Mm -hmm. like right libertarian Mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. Help us understand like the the alliance, the unholy bedfellowness there of Mm -hmm. exclusionary politics around migration coupled with libertarian economic policy.
1: Yeah. Well, right. So this, so it, it's a, been a popular book, not only certainly for right-wing libertarians, just for right-wing people of all kinds. I, um, a, uh, a relatively mainstream example in the United States is is Patrick Buchanan, mm. who um, cites it in, I think, all of his books from the 1990s, all of which have titles that recall the Camp of the Saints, things like mm. The Immigrant Invasion, The Third World Arrival, dot, 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 Population decline mm. inside of the West, The Death of the West. And mm. and he mm. he cites Rusby and its and its subsequent reception. It's praised by people at the National Review and the Wall Street Journal as being um, this prescient prophecy of demographic decline. So it's so it it does get used in that way as an outright um, piece of propaganda for for nativist. Mm -hmm. Exclusionary politics, which don't always and, in fact, often don't run libertarian in the sense that they then lead into calls for an enhanced welfare state for the right kind of white people. Um, pronatalist policies and um, you
0: know encouraging higher birth rates
1: and and so on so
0: right so in other words there's a there's a consistent right-wing protectionist nativism or something mm-hmm. in which borders are just borders and this kind of hatred is totally justifiable and logical because it goes along with that sort of you know seg- segmentation of the world right so, yeah.
1: exactly and and because you see these these Particularist demographic communities as bearers of both specific cultural traditions and 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 uh, memories and um, and sort of forms of self-narration that need to be preserved and will be diluted if a new population comes in. Then yeah. it all it's all quite logical. Yeah. But the the libertarian thing is kind of the twist, and that's the surprising. That was the surprising part for me. And the main the main person to mention there is Murray Rothbard, who is extremely well known libertarian. He's considered the father of what's called anarcho-capitalism, which is Mm -hmm. a very uh, extreme form of libertarianism in the sense that they don't believe in just a small state or a very tightly constrained state, but no state at all. So the argument is you can replace all state functions, you won't have taxes, you will replace otherwise state functions through um, contracted private services, whether it's private security forces, third party arbitration, um, you know, it there, sounds like there will be a lot of law in this world, but it isn't law <laughs> mediated by the state. It'll yeah. be sort of the, in the same way that, that transnational private law is mediated between corporations. It doesn't necessarily always go through governments.
0: Yeah. I read so, a lot of 1970s and 80s science fiction and you can see that all the time because right. they're constantly thinking about, you know, who's going to run the asteroid belt. Right, the answer right. is like a bunch of dirty miners who get together and, <laughs> you know, and execute people because right. that's what they do because they're justice, yeah. Right. exactly.
1: Yeah. And who will, you know, who will compensate for the loss of the cargo Well, they'll turn it over to this insurance company or that yeah. insurance company. You don't need right. a state actually to have insurance
0: yeah. companies. Yeah, yeah.
1: So they also insurance companies also take on an increased role. You know, one of the many ways that I think these right-wing and libertarian. Cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, right, exactly. I mean, some mm-hmm. kind of sc- Scarce commodity-based currency yeah. that cannot be manipulated by mm-hmm. public authorities in the way of fiat money, which they all see as the really the the, the beginning of the end of, of
0: civilization as we know it. Oh my God! The Dune standard. books are all about insurance companies running the world because that's true. The monarchies are meaningless. It's the it's the uh, the space guild, and there is some insurance scheme that's really interesting. And those are the '70s too, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Huh.
1: Um, wow. Yeah. I'm sure the list goes on. I can yeah. only assume. Yeah. Um, But with Rothbard, so the the traditional libertarian position is is I think it's best put by someone at, uh, in the Q&A at some conference I was watching online recently say, so, you know, we're like astronauts. We see the world from a million miles away. Huh. We don't see borders. We don't see states. We just see, like, you know, territory, and we don't see humans. But oh, if we right. got closer, we'd just see humans. And you can't, also can't see, of course, borders from,
0: from the sky. Oh, my God. It's the blue marble as libertarian fantasy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, huh. the, so the normal yeah.
1: position is, is no borders. Yeah. Because how do you have borders if you don't have states, right? Yeah well, the right-wing libertarians have solved that one. And their model is basically the covenant community or the gated community, in other words. You know, people come together and they they um, sign some sort of a binding document about decision-making and shared responsibilities, and then that territory becomes, you know, bolden only to their law and there's no higher authority. Mm-hmm. So they start sort of theorizing this uh, in the 1980s 70s but then really more into the 1980s and 90s and the thing that really gets them talking about what is closed borders libertarianism is this increased concern about south north mig- immigration yeah. and the feeling that uh, and, and it's an extension of the of the 1960s backlash against desegregation in the sense that they use the same term that that what immigration is is actually forced integration because you then have to confront these people who you had no choice in Mm -hmm. having around you, but they're on your roads, they're in your public schools, they're in your parks. Um, so, it, it, that's an incursion on your personal liberty yep. so right you, So, there. your
2: covenant did not include
1: Exactly. People, right? So, if you... That was not what Right. I right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so. Th-
0: this may be getting a little bit too in the weeds, but mm-hmm. isn't there a Lockean history of this debate between, like, a tacit consent versus explicit consent? Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, like, someone who ch- takes up citizenship in a country is, like, ex- explicitly consenting, but then there's this whole other social structure of just, like, the things that we tacitly... Yeah. Buy into.
1: Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's all a kind of an expansion of the question of whether the social contract is is meant literally or figuratively, right? I yeah. mean, because most of the time it is figurative. Yeah. But their argument is really that it is possible now to make it literal, and you should be able to have what Rothbard calls nations by consent, and that consent might not be abstract if you create a new nation either through secession or settlement of a otherwise un you know unsettled territory. Yeah. Um, so it's in the 90s with this is happening across the right, is that the end of the Cold War means the common enemy of the communists is gone, and the new enemy really becomes the non-white immigrant. And a lot of the conservative magazines pivot quite hard in that direction from Chronicles, on the one hand, is the kind of organ of the paleo-conservatives to which Rothbard is aligned. And The National Review itself in the 90s, of course,
0: takes up immigration much more aggressively than before. So Mm post-1989. So in other words, the book comes out in 73. And the other article we're going to talk about, I think, is from 74. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about like so 16 years later. Oh, yeah. There's... Okay.
1: And it's republished and then made available, for example, on the website of American Renaissance, which is the central white nationalist organ. So it becomes... Yeah, it becomes, as someone on American Renaissance reviewed it, the 1984 of our times, right? Right. This thing that was written a while ago, but only now can we see
0: how accurate its vision of the future is. And so this is all... So maybe that is a good time to yeah. pivot because so, so, so far we've been thinking about this. You know, we haven't talked about Mr. Respai personally still alive. <laughs> no, that's okay, yeah. Feel free to visit him. But, <laughs> um, but you know, that, that makes this seem, you know, you can see the Euro side of this. But, of course, actually there's an American side of it as well. So I think, Elizabeth, yeah. you were going to talk about.
2: Yeah, well, so as you were saying, John, just around the same time, um, the thing I wanted to bring in was an article uh, by The Economist. Um, and ecologist, I guess, Um, Garrett Hardin, uh, which is called Living on a Lifeboat. Um, And, you know, I kind of see this as the sort of domesticated or sort of legitimate... Reasonable sounding version of the argument,
1: <laughs> the um, biologized for biologized sure. Biologized yeah,
2: right? yeah. version, and well, you know, reasonable people. Right. So I think maybe he's, a, he's a professor
0: of human ecology in Santa Barbara. I think in 1974 when that he publishes that sounds about it? right. He's, yeah.
2: tra- he's trained at Chicago, yeah. um, and he's most famous for um, an argument uh, in an article called "Tragedy the Commons," uh, which is um, mm-hmm. arguing that because the commons is not. Um, seen to be the property of any particular uh, person or group. There's no incentive to take care of it. And then there's a sort of gradual, generalized degradation of it, right? So this is kind of not a um, surprising—and this this argument, the tragedy of the commons, is extremely widespread, and I think in many circles not particularly— called into question, like sort of taken as a as a self-evident thing, even though plenty of people have pushed back against it. Maybe most famously, um, the economist uh, Eleanor Ostrom, um, who talks about how all the ways in which, in fact, the commons is regulated through different kinds of corporate groups like states or unions, or um, there's a famous ethnography called Lobster Gangs of Maine about how the commons of lobster fishing is is in fact managed quite well. So I wanted to start maybe just by reading this metaphor that sort of encapsulates the argument. Uh, So he says, metaphorically, each rich nation amounts to a lifeboat full of comparatively rich people. The poor of the world are in other, much more crowded lifeboats. Continuously, so to speak, the poor fall out of their lifeboats and swim for a while in the water outside, hoping to be admitted to a rich lifeboat or in some other way to benefit from the, quote, goodies on board. What should the passengers on a rich lifeboat do? This is the central problem of the ethics of a lifeboat. And, you know, he, like Ras although in a more sort of reasonable version, reasonable sounding version, um, is um, sort of placing... Uh, a lot of the responsibility for kind of um, environmental and political degradation at the hands of people who believe that they are doing the right thing, right, who are taking the idealistic view. Um, He sort of equates them with – Christians or Marxists at one point. Um,
0: doesn't <laughs> tisk, he actually... And, but he makes a sort of pointedly... I mean, I might be misremembering the article, but doesn't he make a pointedly anti-racist side to his argument where he says, look, set the abilities and the contributions yes. of the people at zero. Let's like, say they're all zero, the same. However they are. Nonetheless, yes. we don't want them in our lifeboat. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's yeah. a carrying capacity
1: argument. Yeah. It's an ecology
0: argument. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: we are just um, other organisms. Right.
2: There isn't going to be enough to go around and therefore... Right. We are going to need to make choices and liberals are not willing to make those choices because they succumb to these idealistic
1: arguments. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's I mean it's contemporaneous with, of course, like the Club of Rome's limits to growth report, right? But rather than scaling it up to the world to say, what changes do we need to make right. given yeah. these limits, his point is it's the world doesn't exist as an active political category. There's no world government. Right. So we need to think about this only at the level of the nation. And when you do that, Zero sumness comes back, like with right. Avengers, right, right? Right. And there's no so, sense
2: of um, the sort of system within which these different lifeboats are operating.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, it's uh, like there's a, no they, effective, I, there's I no know. effective form of collective decision making. Right. Right. Yeah. That he, I mean, he has the, this this the snide thing about the UN, right? The UN is only there insofar as governments give. It, the impression of making decisions yeah, at the moment. Yeah. And it has
2: it, no power because right. it decided not to have power.
1: Or right. where the right. states decided not to give it power. Or the states yeah.
0: right. decided not to give it right. power. So that's like right. the opening is the dueling metaphors of spaceship or raft. And so mm-hmm. the point is, if there were a spaceship, there would be a captain. There'd be a captain. Yeah. Right. Right. Or at least a crew.
2: Right. Um, I think I might push back on the idea that it's exactly an anti-racist argument um, as much as a avoiding...
0: Non-racist, a non-racist, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, non-racist, <laughs> right. and I didn't even mean, I didn't even mean yeah. structurally non-racist. I just yeah. meant putatively in terms yes. of. Yes. It. Whereas enormous. the respite argument, I just think it's, it's just worth noting how much he doubles down on his racism because even like the stench and the squalor of the raft in the Respy novel, which you would think is an effect of like being on a raft, mm-hmm. becomes instead an attribute of like the people who are stinky and dirty.
2: Right, right. Know? And there's this so, kind of horrible luxuriating in the in the raceness in Camp of the Saints, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in the in the Harden, you know, I mean not surprisingly as an economist, he's basically sort of saying, let let difference equal, you know, be null, Right. You sort of we're going to we're going to write a formula in which that is written out. Right. Um mm-hmm.
0: Well, it, it sort of raises the interesting question of like whether race blindness actually matters within these arguments. Like right. if you can make the same argument without resorting to the racial rhetoric yeah. is the racial rhetoric. I mean, this might be a but, question about the respite, whether yeah, the racial mm-hmm. rhetoric is an instrument is just is an integral part or it's just. Well, I think it matters dressing. because
2: it makes it more palatable. To frame it in these terms, I
0: mean for Harden. For Harden, yeah, I yeah, mean, but Respai is not Respai. Actually, clearly struck a note as well by going right. to the other direction. But so. I, I
1: think that I mean.
2: But it's easy to see, or it's easy for many people. Certainly not for everyone, but it's easy for many people to see that Raspai is outside. Of, it's outside of the pale for many, right? Whereas Harden, in many circles, mm. is. Seems
0: perfectly reasonable, but 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 so Quinn, are you saying that these are just these are sort of rhetorical and stylistic differences? And this, in a way, we could turn this question to like what the Republican Party is acting like nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are lots of hardened type people in the Republican Party, like Mm -hmm. there are people who are going to try to seek out that respectable scientific center, and clearly there are inflamers also, like people Mm -hmm. who love the idea of yeah, the Steve Kings, yeah, yeah, just yeah, and 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 not just Steve King, but also as you said, Bannon, like people. Who, people who work by inflaming mm-hmm. the um, sensibilities the insensibilities really fun, so. of the left, and, mm-hmm. and Ma- so are those merely rhetorical differences between a fundamentally unified right-wing ideology that has a kind of rational, political, n- non-racial tinge on one side, and a totally openly racist tinge on the other side, or are those actually two different ways of looking at the world that just happen to be traveling in the same uh, Maserati together? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, I think it it gets tricky if you think about climate change too seriously, right? And this might be a good chance to sort of segue into the third book we Mm -hmm. hope to talk about, because sure, it can seem, you know, small hearted and and kind of unethical at some level to take on Hardin's lifeboat ethics. But there must be at least some way in which he's right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the sense that we are dealing with a situation of limited, not just limited resources, it's actually much worse than that, you know, a rapidly mm-hmm. transforming um, planet that will change the terrain around us. So in that sense, the difference mm-hmm. that you're describing, John, between sort of a, an overtly racialized or culturally coded um, form of right-wing rhetoric versus the at least formally non-racist forms of economistic right-wing rhetoric do become quite consequential because it's the question then of who you are selecting as the criterion of selection for the lifeboat in a way, right? I mean, I I don't think it's that... Well, but Far is that fash. true, though? Let Quing- I
0: me mean, just to under I, to- I hear yeah. what you're saying about yeah. the conservative conservatism. I yeah. know that. I mean, I remember that from the first George mm-hmm. Bush. Like, right. I totally accept the, the existence Ryan. of that. Okay. Yeah. But the just to stick with the lifeboat metaphor for a minute, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, fine. It has these environmentalist and population bomb roots. Mm-hmm. But just as I think you were saying, Elizabeth, the selection of the lifeboat as nation as unit of analysis, mm-hmm. like that, that by itself doesn't, th- there's nothing environmentalist about that. That's just like a Way of justifying segregation, basically balkanization.
1: Right. Sure, but I mean, insofar as any solution to, or not even solution to any sort of um, mitigating approach to the coming climate catastrophe, will have to sort of choose the scale at which it operates. I think that you know whether or not that where that's you know it's the question of kind of communitarianism. Like, mm-hmm. will, it, will it? You know, what is the what is the size of the vessel that make sense, not as, like, is there a way of thinking about yeah. the, the lifeboat metaphor? You know, is there yeah. something between Spaceship Earth and lifeboat nation yeah. that could actually be operationable as, like, a non-reactionary yeah. politics? Or yeah, I mean, mentality. one,
2: you know, it's, it's there's sort of, on the one hand, this sense of the zero-sum, yeah. right, which is the ethics of the lifeboat. Yeah. But then what are the principles of redistribution yeah, according exactly. to which that... Yeah. Yeah game gets played right yeah. and that's the that seems well, like the yeah. difference well right? yeah and is it's that... and
0: it's too bad we didn't choose as our third text this other amazing film um, Quinn that you sent me which we can put a link to this m- film Libra from yeah. the late 1970s which is a libertarian fantasy about escaping to a satellite basically okay. that where, where it's not a zero sum game it's okay. uh, i think I, I had a t-shirt when i was a kid that said the meek shall inherit the earth and the rest of us shall escape to the stars. Oh, really? So
2: before we go to our third text, I wanted to maybe shift it a little bit um, to talk about water and boats and land. I mean, clearly there's some, like, geographic, you know, Mm. relevancy to these kinds Mm -hmm. of metaphors of the lifeboat and the armada. Mm -hmm. And in the third text, you know, that the lifeboat um, and the rising seas Mm -hmm. is picked Mm -hmm. up. But I think that those do other kinds of work in the text too. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious what you guys think about that. What,
1: well I mean at a basic level, this is a perfect segue to I think the, it th- is, the I third agree, book yeah. but but you know, ironically the camp of the saints I, might offer us a bit of a way out in the in the in the flotilla in the Armada, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. what is that but a collection of tethered together lifeboats mm-hmm. but one that then produces its own collectivity and its own kind of integrity mm-hmm. somehow and and I mean if again to sort of flip the script on on Buy, if this is actually true it's an extraordinary vindication of kind of vanguard politics right i mean how is it exactly that a million people end up taking over france a country of you know dozens of millions Right? Mm-hmm. It's like cause a million people showed up in Germany in 2015, mm-hmm. and the result was not the total transformation of the fabric of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the that vision of like many, many small lifeboats mm-hmm. uh, sort of acting as one might be something that yeah. might be slightly I, redemptive. The other
2: more. sort of, you know, quiet metaphor that I felt like, especially in Camp of the Saints, but I think it's there, and the others is um, the Middle Passage and the slave ships, mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah.
2: Um, especially in those descriptions of the bodies being all packed in together, um, right. you know, reminded me, I mean, I don't know if it was at all consciously in Rusby's mind, but reminded me a lot of those diagrams of the slave ships yeah. and and this whole sort of, you know, what kinds of movements of different kinds of people across the globe. Yeah. Have, have been going on is and and that
1: yeah does that and, mean? and the the historical sociologist Jason Moore has recently he's recently titled something Slave Ship Earth mm-hmm. so that is yeah. something that wow. people have also played that's with that's fascinating as
0: a, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Play is not the right
2: yeah and for. another group of anthropologists has talked about um the planet as a plantation economy
0: right right yeah yeah so this is a great segue, actually, to the, to the John Lanchester book. Um, so John, John Lanchester, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right, he's kind of like an English Tom Wolfe of the 2010s. Uh, so he's a journalist who probably became best known for a satirical novel about neoliberalism called Capital. And now he just came out just a couple of months ago with this novel, The Wall. And there's a premise that an island nation, which is explicitly not Britain, you could <laughs> call it, schmitten, you know? Though it has many surround, pubs. Yeah, seems <laughs> no, it seems to have has, many pubs, and the weather is always extremely <laughs> there's gray. There's a lot of tea yes. being drunk. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot tea. Of there is a yes. lot of tea. yeah. At one point, they make a joke about anti aphrodisiacs, and someone says, Yeah, it's called tea. Though, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, it's an island that is uh, surrounded its entire border with a wall, and I think this is exactly to the point that, um, that we've been talking about. The wall is in response to two different things it's in response to environmental disaster, so climate change, mm-hmm. rising sea and also heat elsewhere, and then also the immigration that is a consequence of that. So it's like a a flood of people imagined almost as like part of that natural flood. And then in the face of that, um, it's a very kind of stripped down dystopian account in which everybody, every title has a capital letter associated with it. So people have to go and guard against the others with a capital O. And to do that, they become defenders with a capital D. And
2: the climate change is the
0: change. And it's the change. And then the wall. It is, in fact, uh, so 10,000 kilometers of capital W wall, a defender for every 200 meters, 50,000 defenders on duty at any time, another 50,000 on the other shift. So 100,000 on duty, day in, day out. The only things that can happen are bad things. So you want nothing to happen. So it's like your job is to guard stasis. In order to guard stasis... Like, the, the entire youth of the country is standing at the edges, and then the thing they're not doing while they're standing there is also with a capital letter B. They're not breeding. Because, basically, not only do you want to keep other people from coming in, but nobody in the country feels like having children anymore either. <laughs> so,
2: And yet there's a demographic problem. Yeah. Right?
1: There's a, For that there's reason, there's a
0: demographic yeah. problem. Right, right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I mean... Right. It seems like there would right. be a solution. Right, and then the right, and then the final point, um, and then the final point being, you know, which goes to this issue of like whether this is a um a non-racist or a racialized account, which is you're not supposed to let anyone in, but if you do let someone in, you each person who comes in, one of the defenders is thrown out. Right. So it's an and explicit. So zero it's an explicitly sum zero-sum, zero-sum lifeboat.
1: And know. the other who gets in is themselves not executed or expelled out, but they're given a chip and then made one of the help, which is sort of of a fluid domestic service class, which you can take on willfully as long as you feed and house them at any given point. And who are the
2: property of the state.
1: Right. And so, I mean, the race thing is um, Elizabeth and I were talking about this before. It really is, I think the most important, interesting part of the book, the more I think about it, Because I think that the the flood-refugee parallel is kind of forced. I mean, this is something that that people who study this point out, is that this uh, uh, assumed direct relation between climate change and displacement Mm -hmm. is actually overdrawn in the sense that there's as many... Um, there's as much likelihood of people being locked into the place that they're in as there is of them being pushed Mm. out of it because it takes resources to travel. You can't move if you have nothing. It's much more likely that you die in place than you get to where you're going.
0: So can I say that totally makes sense to me? But the way I understood the um, overlay of those two types Mm -hmm. of terror, like the uh, climate change threatening our borders and the human capital flood mm-hmm. was more like an account of the cognitive panic yeah. that you might undergo right. as you saw it. I mean, if you just think about you know, we, we haven't really touched on this issue of like why it is that people have flocked to far-right ideologies lately, mm-hmm. but you know, there is, a you know, there's Clearly, people find themselves in a kind of cognitive duress where they start believing irrational things, and I think things that, in retrospect, they will understand to have been irrational. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. E- nonetheless, it can take hold. Right. Okay. So well, that's where the that's where yeah. the
1: generational story is interesting in the wall too. Is sort of yeah. because it seems like the main characters that we have who have grown up after the change. Yeah. And by the way, I think that's almost definitely borrowed directly from the East Germany, West Germany case because when the, when the oh. wall fell, it was referred to, it's still referred to as die Wende, the change. Huh. Um, so mm. in this case, the change leads to the erection of the wall. Yeah. But they yeah. don't seem to have any of the argument there about why they should be so afraid of the others except just that they are. Yeah. Right? I mean, like you're saying, it's just like a reflexive thing. Yeah. But it makes you wonder, I mean, is the generation before supposed to have been persuaded by some kind of welfare mm-hmm. state overburdening type explanation? Right. If so, right. you don't really see yeah. much of a trace of it, right? It's all just yeah. naturalized, and
2: it's or and it's really interactional, right? You're yeah. afraid of the others because you know the others will immediately kill you because they will have to,
1: right? And then, and right. if you don't, if you let them in, then you will be then yourself you will be expelled. expelled.
0: Yeah. yeah. So no, the thing I thought was going to come into the novel more, but it certainly exists in a parallel to the the. Um, Camp of the Saints is that question of the um, traitors in our midst, like the sympathizers, the people who are willing to mm-hmm. you know let the others in. Do you guys have a thought about that? I mean it's the the kind of presence, non-presence of that as a as a plot device?
1: Well, that was actually the sentence that I pulled out from the Camp of the Saints mm. to, to share was this very colonel, this this proud last last Western man says at some point, in war the real enemy is always behind the lines. Mm-hmm. Because it does seem to unite all three of these—that—that in the end, it's a question of betrayal from within, and the threat of like the fifth column, right, or the kind of insidiousness Mm -hmm. of an idea among your own, rather than the embodied threat of Mm -hmm. people. And maybe even
2: inside yourself, right, your own humanitarian impulses need to be be policed. Yeah. Doing.
0: yeah. So this is a great time to pivot to our uh, recallable books. So if you don't believe in your future, at least you can take some solace in the past. Um, it concludes. So we conclude with recommendations, basically, for further reading on the, you know, the topic that we have raised today. And as with the books we discussed, there will be links to those on our website, along with other material for folks who want to explore this topic further. So um, Quinn, as our guest, do you want to start us off? Sure. Well,
1: this book actually hasn't quite come out yet. <laughs> okay. Great. It'll be out in the next couple of So it is from the future. It is from the future. It is from the future. It's it's, the title of the book is Mutant Neoliberalism, Hmm. and it's an edited volume edited by William Callison and Zach Manfredi, published on Fordham University Press, and it gathers some really interesting writing, including Melinda Cooper writing about the anti-austerity of the far right. So this is the difference between the kind of libertarians of the AFD and then the kind of welfare chauvinist of the Front National, Etienne Balabar who's been an extraordinary writer on on um, the idea of Europe for many years mm. Wendy Brown has a chapter in there um, a couple of other people do and I think it's the best it, it will be the best collection so far to kind of account for 2016 as something other than just the jungle growing back as kind of the mm. beltway uh, punditocracy would like us to understand it
0: that sounds great mm. um, Elizabeth?
2: Yeah, so mine actually picks up on our the last bit of our discussion, uh, and it's by Douglas Holmes. It's an ethnography of uh, central bankers and monetarism and central bankers. It's called Economy of Words. Um, that's sort of about how really about the move, a particular kind of move away from gold um, and the central bank's kind of, you know, main, the thing that was thought to be the main job of central banks, which was to take care of gold mm-hmm. um, as a kind of safeguard of the nation among other kinds of things that mm-hmm. you've described so well. Um, a, in favor of a kind of um, sort of performative economics-based semiotic function of, of controlling the money supply through things like quantitative easing mm-hmm. and other kinds of mm-hmm. um, techniques mm-hmm. and how that... Um, uh well the the book is about is centrally focused on that, but I think that tension between the sort of economy of words and the economy of something that supposedly comes from outside of the world of words mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. central yeah. to what we've been talking about.
1: It's what Paul Volcker called the mystique of central banking. You mm-hmm. needed to speak yeah. in such a way that it was nomic enough that people could read right, other things right. in than what you intended. And I, I
2: had a, so I I'm doing a project on gold, and I had interlocutors say, you know, we've moved from a gold standard to a PhD standard, and who's, <laughs> who's to say which one is better? <laughs>
0: Um, so I picked up a sort of a different strand of our discussion so I went back to I was just sort of brooding on 73 and 74 and the question of governmentality back then and so I went the other direction um, towards science fiction as I often do and I picked up uh, Ursula Le Guin's 1974 book The Dispossessed and Ambiguous Utopia and actually it connects in many ways to what we're talking about today especially in that question of like how you constitute governmentality while still distrusting the state because it's sort of a you know open secret that Le Guin is, among other things, trying to work out some kind of anarchist politics. And I I sometimes think of what she does as a sort of solitary solidarity, like so she wants people to be on their own and yet nonetheless want to live and coexist with one another. And so she takes the the, tradition of sort of utopian democratic socialism, which just asserts people will just love one another. And It's a dark, it's kind of a dark, grave version of that because she thinks you can live in a world of privation and limited resources where you're going to have to struggle with one another, but she thinks that there are mechanisms for getting there that are yeah that are not nation or state bound mechanisms Mm -hmm. so it's it's a really interesting novel it's it it like camp of the saints it's kind of strange as a novel but i think it's a very i think it's it's just a thoughtful exploration of what it would mean to to want out of liberalism and not be sure you know how you get um connective tissue without it um, all right. Um, well, Quinn, thank you so much. And yeah. I will just say that Recall, this book is hosted by uh, John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden. Website design and social media by Matthew Schratz. And if you like this episode, you might want to check out our discussion of women and politics with Manduhai Boyendoguer and the one about addiction and habits and dependency with Gina Terugiano. Um Not because I'm saying... Right wing politics is addiction. Just, you know, this <laughs> <laughs> interesting connection. Um, further episodes coming up include a conversation with the Chinese science fiction writer Xi Shen Liu, another one with Zadie Smith. Um, I want to say future Nobel laureate Zadie Smith, um, and also with the poet David Ferry and biologist E.O. Wilson. Uh, finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to tweet about us, mention the show on Facebook, or write a review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, thank you very much for listening.